Good morning, Redeemer. I think we have seats up front. Those of you who are standing in the back, go ahead and come up front. You aren't, you aren't going to offend anyone. You're welcome to come on up forward. I'm always aware that this is a unique day, never to be repeated. Never again will this crowd gather on this day, ever. That's kind of amazing. And just to punctuate the day, today's my birthday. Well, okay, not. The birthdays now are not to be celebrated, actually. I, uh, but, and it's not really my birthday, so it reminds me of a friend we had that whenever we took her to a restaurant, we would tell the servers that it was her birthday, whether it was or not, and she would get a cake. I was born February 29th. Hey, here's the good news. <laughs> here's the good news. I've only had 14 and a half birthdays. That's pretty cool. But if you had told me when I was eight on my real birthday that one day I would lose track of birthdays, I wouldn't have believed you. They were just too important. Now, even my real birthday, you know, that click by every four years, the real birthday on February 29th, seems like it's every other month. I just can't keep up with them. Time's a funny thing, isn't it? Very interesting thing. Past, present, future. I think I, I, think I got this from Martin Luther, so this is not completely original, but... Um, I think it was Martin Luther who said, we make sense of life only by looking back into the past. That's, that's how we make sense of life, how we understand life. There's many important days that we look back on in our life. I remember the day that I came to faith in Christ. I'm going to tell you about that in a, in a few minutes. I remember my wedding day. I was so nervous that actually I think I only remember my wedding day because of the pictures that we took at the event. But I do remember standing at the front and seeing Leanne just so beautiful walking down the aisle. I remember the birth of each of my three boys. Precious days. Life only makes sense looking back because I remember in all that the faithfulness of God, how God was with us. And though I couldn't really see what was next, I didn't know what was coming, I see now, I see looking back, his great faithfulness in my life. I couldn't see it then, but I see it now. The Bible says we walk by faith, but we get to see it looking back. That's why, just parenthetically, that's why it's important for you guys who are younger, those of you especially in university that are here for the Focus Conference, it's so important for you to have friendships with people who have walked faithfully with the Lord for years. They can help you make sense of life, make sense of the day, today, as you live in the present. We, those of us who are older, have so many years to look back on and see the faithfulness of God. But as important as the past is, of course, we can't live there. We don't live in the past. In fact, people who try to live in the past are sad people. We can only live in the present, in the here and now. We live today. Today is the day we make choices. 
We're not even sure that we're going to have a tomorrow. James lets us know about that in the book of James. And one of the things that I've learned, of course, by living so many years and looking back at the past, is that there are no, no guarantees about tomorrow. None. We can only live today. Tomorrow is in the future. Now, the future is important too. We live with purpose and aim because of the future. We have goals because of what we think is coming or what we believe to be true about the future. I remember a number of years ago, Leanne was facing very many serious worries and anxieties in her life. And there was a threat of these anxieties just taking over her life. It was a hard time for us, but a good time. A good time to trust the Lord. A good time to go to Him. And during that time, our good friend, Michael Lawrence, told us to remember there are only two days we worry about. Two days that Jesus tells us to be concerned for. Today. We are concerned about the day. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. You can't do anything about it anyhow. But today, think about how to live today. And the day, the second day, the day, which of course Michael meant was the day of the Lord. When he would either return and face us or when we die and we face him, the day. It was a great reminder for us. Tremendous way to live life. Live in the day. Live in today, knowing that there are aims about the day. Well, the passage this morning is a pretty hard-hitting one. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Our passage today is about the day. This is going to be One of the most important days of your life. I can promise you that. That is a prophecy. I am prophesying. This day will be one of the most important days of your life. More than graduation. More than your wedding day. More than the birth of your child. It's the day. The day. When you will meet God face to face after you die in judgment. Turn to Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23. While you're, while you're getting there, for those of you who take notes, let me say I have three points for three verses. We're picking up right at the end of the Sermon of the Mount. And my three points are the Lordship of Jesus, point one. Point two, the will of God. Point three, law and gospel. Let's read, let's read this passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord... Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of Lawlessness. Section 1, Lordship. Let's say you have a friend named Bob. And um, Bob comes up to you and says this sentence. I want to know how you'd respond. 
Bob comes up to you and says, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. How would you respond to that person, Bob? I think I'd say, wait, wait, wait a second, Bob. Did, did I hear you right? Um, did, did you just say there will be people in heaven who call you Lord, who, who go to heaven? And Bob says, yes, but some won't. And then I'd say, well, I'm just asking, Bob, because I don't think so. I mean, Bob, nobody calls you Lord, as in Lord God Almighty is going to go to heaven because you're not God. I mean, in fact, I think you might be a little crazy. That's very close to how the Pharisees would have heard Jesus. When Jesus makes this pronouncement in Matthew 7, they would have responded to these words of Jesus in that way. They, they would have heard Jesus say it, and they would have seen him as a madman. Actually, that's what they said in Mark 3. He's out of his mind. And they would have some logical reasons to do that. It's a statement from an uneducated carpenter's son. He's outside of the religious system. Who has approved this kind of statement? He's an itinerant preacher. And look at the people who are following him. Unschooled, rough fishermen. Not only would they have seen him as crazy, they would have called him a blasphemer too. That is one who curses God. That's because Jesus says how people, how people see him will have a lot to do with their eternal destiny. To the Pharisees' ears, the claim that God, moreover, was his heavenly father, made him equal to God. Ultimately, that is why they killed him. In John, in the book of John, chapter 5.18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, that is the Pharisees, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but that he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, today, there's still those who would see this as blasphemy. Actually, our Muslim friends would still see the claim of divinity as blasphemy, to call Jesus God carries the same offense in Islam as it did to the Pharisees in their day. But by and large, much has changed about how we would view Jesus. That's because with 2020 hindsight, we can see what has happened to the words of Christ. For one, his promises have come true. Even in his own day, his promises came true. So he promised that he would be arrested. He promised that he would be beaten. He promised that he would be crucified. He promised that he would be put in the grave and then three days later, risen, alive. And he did. The weight and witness of history has given evidence to the words and teachings of Jesus and that they were true. Regardless of whether or not you believe Jesus' words to be true, you have to acknowledge that they are world-changing words. You have to acknowledge that the words of Jesus have had enormous impact over the ages. So he promised that the church would be worldwide. And despite reasons to believe it, it's true today. The The fact is, the only reason we remember the Pharisees 
or the other characters of the, of the Bible in the narrative of Christ, Pontius, Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, the only reason they are not just minor footnotes in the, in the history of, of humankind is because they touched the life of Jesus. You would never remember those people. You would never remember Herod or the Pharisees or probably even Caesar Augustus. I mean, what other Caesars can you name? None of them have had a fraction of the impact that Jesus had on art or civilization or culture. Today, no longer does Jesus look like a crazed, itinerant preacher making outlandish claims about what will happen one day. Millions have preached his words. Tens of thousands of seminaries and institutions of higher learning have been established to tell a story. Well, it's not, it's not just the history of Jesus in his day or the repeated history throughout the ages. It's a shared common experience that we have today. We've come to understand that those who truly know Christ have an astounding similar experience so that when we touch the lives of other believers, we understand something that the world does not. I was uh, recently with some church friends in Switzerland, and uh, it was a wonderful time of fellowship about four weeks ago, uh, but I had made a mistake on the scheduling and had uh, booked my flight a day after they all left. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go over to Zermatt, Switzerland and spend the day there because 40 some plus years ago in Zermatt, Switzerland, I had come to faith in Christ. I had bowed my knee in a little greasy hotel called the Matterhorn Blick over a bar where a young man had shared the gospel with me. I'd never heard it before. And my life broke open with new life. I was born again in that one-star hotel in Zermatt, Switzerland. And I thought, you know, I'm going to make a little pilgrimage back to Zermatt. See what it's like. See if I can find the old hotel. So I got on the train. I traveled up to Zermatt. I... uh, I just got out at the station, found a little hotel, began wandering around the city to see if I could find that old place. It was, you could imagine, 40 years ago, it was wildly different. New buildings, new streets. I I was a little lost, but there were some places that I knew, the old church that had been there for hundreds of years. And then, oh yeah, the graveyard I walked past in the little park. And there I came upon the block where the old Matterhorn Blick sat and it had been torn down, completely gone. (laughs) Not that it matters. I mean, it was more the memory of what God had done in my life so long ago. Later, a couple hours later, I went to have dinner, found a little restaurant nearby. I sat down. There was an Asian couple seated next to me and then another Western couple on the far side. And I kind of listened in, you know, when you're by yourself at a a table. And and they were kind of loud. And I, I figured pretty quickly... They're loud. They're, they're Americans. <laughs> I can hear them. And, um, and they were making friends with the, with the server. And, um, and then I heard them say, we just noticed you prayed for dinner to the couple next to us. Are you Christians? And this sweet Asian couple kind of looked a little startled, but they looked up and they said, we are. We're Christians. We're from Hong Kong. And they said, we're from Canada. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and uh, we love the Lord. And so I kind of peered down, you know, it's like this row of tables. I go, me too. 
And uh, they praise God. And uh, they said, what brings you here? I said, well, I live in Dubai, but I'm skiing here with friends. And I've made a little pilgrimage to come to Zermatt because 40 years ago, 40 years ago in this town, I bent my knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and I've been walking with him ever since. I can't tell you what he's done. And they understood because of the shared common experience of what it means to truly be born again in Christ and have fellowship with people regardless of continents or languages or places or cities or oceans or culture because of what God has done in our lives. And next thing you know, we're taking pictures of each other and our server is really befuddled why these people are acting like family rather than the strangers who came in because we are family. I was with brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm astounded that we can have fellowship with one another and it's a great witness to the truth claims of Jesus. So certainly the evidence of the life of Jesus in his day, the impact of Jesus in history, the shared experiences of those who have been born again, tell us that the Pharisees were just flat wrong. There's great evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. And who he says he is, is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. What about lordship today? Still today, even the evidence that has been given over history, over time, over shared experience, it's still audacious for Jesus to claim lordship in your life today, even from a modern perspective. Not, not, I'm not talking about the logic of the Pharisees here, proven to be false, but for different reasons. Today, Jesus claims to be the Lord of the universe and the judge of your life. And it sounds audacious to our our ears, but that's because of our sin, our sin nature. Jesus as your Lord means that he wants to be the center of your universe. That your life would revolve around Jesus, not you. That every part of your life, every nook and cranny of your life, is under His direction. And that, you see, teaches, touches deep, deep down inside of us. That touches that sin inside of us that started all sin back, back in the garden. When Eve had that conversation with Satan. When Satan lied to Eve. Or at least it was a half-truth. Because he told her, if you eat the forbidden fruit, she would become like God. And that's the temptation, right? We we need to remember, as Ligon Duncan says, that temptation to be like God, to be the Lord of your life, comes with a hiss on the end of it. It's a powerful, powerful temptation. It is still in us. Our desire now is for us to be God. We want to reject the lordship of Jesus because we want to be God. Now, the fact of the matter is, most people reject Christianity 
not because they have deep concerns or reservations about the credentials or qualifications of Jesus or that they're upset about the Spanish Inquisitions or they can't fellowship with all the hypocrites in the church or that they're worried about innocent people going to hell or that they believe there are contradictions in the Bible or any other various smoke screens to the real reason, the real reason that covers the true truth about who we are. The actual truth being that we don't want Jesus telling us what to do. We want to be Bob Almighty, right? That's what we long to do. So most, most people reject Jesus because they don't want him messing with their lives, no matter what mess they've made of their lives on their own. But according to Jesus, according to him, this is not always obvious. There are many who reject his lordship in their lives, but they're sneaky. They sneak around. Churches are filled with people that may not reject him outright. They may want the good things Jesus promises, so they give Jesus lip service. They call him Lord. But it's clear from what Jesus says here in verse 21 that it's just words. For Jesus to be Lord, you must live like he's Lord. And that starts in the heart. You see, it's not so much what you do, although we're going to look at that in the next verse. It's who you are. It has more to do with who you are. So check your heart. Much is at stake. Jesus says, not Mac, Jesus says that there are many who call Jesus Lord, but who are deceived. Let me give you eight quick flags to help you see this in your own life. I want to I state the positive, that flag which marks us as under the lordship of Christ and that flag which marks us away from, from the lordship of Christ. Eight quick reminders. Is Jesus number one in your heart? Or do you merely desire the good byproducts of the Christian life, warm Christian fellowship, comfort, success? Two, are you soft to God and His correction in your life through His Word, His people, His church? Or are you distant and unyielding and take offense if there's questions about your walk? Thirdly, do you see growth in your life over time? Have you grown spiritually? Are you in the same place you've always been spiritually, thinking the same things spiritually? Over the years. Fourth, do you fight sin? Or do you harbor a secret sin life that has power over you? Fifth, do you depend on God? Or do you depend on yourself? Are you self-sufficient? Do you... Sixthly, desire God over the world. Or does the treasures of Jesus pale next to the treasures of the world? Seven, do you trust in the work of Jesus knowing that you are no better than others? Or do you reassure yourself by saying, well, I'm better than most? Eighth, finally, 
Do you respond to his love by wanting to serve him? Or do you want to earn his love by being good? Let me, let me repeat the positives. Is Jesus number one in your heart? Are you soft to God? Do you see growth in your life? Do you fight sin? Do you depend on God? Do you desire God over the world? Do you trust in the work of Jesus, knowing that you're no better than others? Do you respond to his love by wanting to serve him? Those are the marks of those under the lordship of Christ. They're indications of true lordship in your life. Which is, by the way, God's will for your life. That's God's will for your life. Point two. Let's talk about God's will. There's actually... A couple things to look at in verse 21, but I'm just picking these two, lordship and God's will, because they're linked. You know, one of the most amazing things about what Jesus says in this first verse in 21 is that he knows how to gain entrance to heaven. What a thought. I mean, if you could package that up and sell it, how much would that be worth? You know, you you think of the, the billions of dollars that are spent just on health care, Trillions of dollars around the world just spent on health care so that we can live a better life a little bit longer, just years, months. You think how much work and effort and time goes into just adding days to our lives. But if you could actually offer eternal life in heaven, what, what would you get for that? And Jesus says right here that he knows the key. He knows how to get that. So what is the key? What is it Jesus says gets us into heaven? Well, he says it in black and white. There it is. To do the will of God. I don't know about you, but that's kind of anticlimactic for me. (laughs) Everybody knows that. I mean, so what? I mean, all religions say that, right? How do you get to heaven? Do the will of God. So what's so special about it? Well, if we look carefully, if we look carefully at the Bible, at this passage, we come to understand that God's will for our lives is very different than what most people think. Even what most Christians think. Because the question is, do we have a biblical understanding, a Jesus-centered understanding of God's will? So just as we can get lordship all mixed up and wrong through lip service, we can get God's will completely wrong. That's because, I think, normally, when people think about God's will for their lives, they think of a calling in their life. They think of what job to get or what person they're to marry or what school to attend or where to live. Basically, the choices you make in life. They think of God's will in that way. And, And believe me, as someone who's worked with university students for 30 years now, 35 years, 35 years plus, when I talk to a student about knowing God's will, there are two things on their mind. Job and marriage, not, not necessarily in those order. I mean, but, but God's will for us is not primarily or first about what we're to do. It's about who you're to be, who you are. It's not about work you do for God, but the trajectory of your life. And if you don't get that right, you see, if you don't understand that that's first, you'll get God's will and understanding God's will all backwards in your mind. God's will for you is lordship. That's God's will for your life. That's the calling in your life, to put Jesus first. That's what 
Jesus is contrasting here in verse 21. Those who do not follow Jesus as Lord are not following God's will for their lives. The Bible speaks of God's will or our calling in life as something that's towards God. There's actually 39 references in the New Testament to the word calling, and they all have to do not about job or marriage, but about the direction to God. Not only that, the ongoing sanctification in our life, the ongoing growth in Christ in our lives is often described from God's viewpoint as a calling, as God's will. There are 20 times in the New Testament where God calls us to live for Him in a genuine way, with a changed heart. That's God's will for you. So, for example, in 2 Timothy 1, 8-9, Paul says, God, who saved us and called us, not, not to a girl or a guy or a job or a place, called us to a holy calling, that we live a holy life. Or think about John 6, 29. Uh, the passage that Nissen, Nissen will speak to us next week on about the bread of life. Don't miss it. It's going to be a powerful sermon. I've been talking with Nissen about it. But in that passage, in John 6, verse 29, the people have come to Jesus. They want bread. They say to him, what must we do to do the work that God requires of us? They're very emphatic about it. They're frustrated with Jesus. What do we do? Just tell us the work. John records that Jesus says in John 6, 29, the work of God is this, that you believe in the one he has sent. That's because the work is hard. It's hard to believe sometimes. Michael Bennett says in his book, Are You Called? After an extensive survey of the word in the New Testament, a call, a call in life, a call in your life, basically boils down to two things. We're called to be Christians. God calls us to be genuine disciples of Christ as our Lord. And secondly, we're called to be holy, to grow in Christ's likeness, to be maturing disciples of Christ as our Lord. That's God's will for your life. That's your calling, Christian. So I can say with great confidence that I know the direction of God's will in your life, specifically yours. If you come up and ask me, Mac, what's the direction of God's will in my life? I can tell you the direction of God's will in your life is towards Jesus. Always. That's the answer. Other things may flow out of that, but that's the direction of God's will. Now, you can do something really cool with this understanding. Uh, Say, you know a friend who wasn't here in church this morning. They're a member, a Christian. You go to them. You say, hey, listen, Max said this sermon this this Friday, and, uh, you know, he told me the direction of God's will in your life. And they'll say, really? Maybe they'll think, next time I'm going to show up on Friday. You know, they're not going to. But uh, listen, uh, I know it. And they say, really? What is it? Now, if they're a university student, they're thinking, what's her name? (laughs) Tell me. The direction of God's will in your life is to be an ever-growing disciple of Jesus under his lordship. That's the direction of God's will in your life. Now, that's probably unsatisfying to your friend. But it's actually the most important thing they could ever hear, I think. And it's key to the entrance to heaven, which brings us to our third point about law and gospel. Now, at at this point in the teaching, Jesus paints a picture in verses 
22 through 23, we've only been talking about one verse, verse 21. And all you need to know actually is in verse 21. But Jesus wants it to be clear. So here's verse 22 and 23. On that day, this is a picture of what he just said in verse 21. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Of course, this is the day, the day that will come when we die. Jesus promises, he promises that our death is not the end of our existence. We will stand before him. Jesus speaks with great confidence about this, like he's been there, like he sees it, like he knows it's coming, and that's because he was, and he does, and it is. And in front of all those who've died and are hoping and waiting for entrance into heaven, Jesus reveals that he, he is the one who grants entrance. And many of these people, they recognize him, and they call him Lord, and they they start talking about all the good things they did for God through their deeds. And I'm pretty sure, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure I'd like to hang out with these people. I mean, this is pretty powerful stuff. They prophesy in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They do many mighty works in the name of Jesus. Yet oddly, strangely, Jesus says he doesn't know them. How can he not know them? They did all kinds of things for Jesus in his name. What's the problem? Well, it's interesting to note that this is what most of the world thinks is how to get to heaven. That we do good works that please God, and then we get in. But look carefully at how they approach Jesus. Notice, they point to their own works as the reason they should go to heaven. Not the works of Jesus. They believe in themselves to gain heaven. Their righteousness comes from themselves. Their righteousness is not from Jesus. Their righteousness is what they did. They are self-righteous. I think I've told you before, I'll say it again, nobody likes self-righteous people. Nobody. I don't like it in myself when I see it in me. I don't like it in others when I see it in them. And let me tell you, God does not like it at all. He hates it. Fact is, if you try and earn God's favor to gain heaven through your righteousness, Jesus says, you are being lawless. So Jesus says to the self-righteous, depart from me, I never knew you. In other words, you cannot get to heaven through your own works. No matter how good they are, no matter what great things you've done, you cannot get to heaven through that. You only get to heaven through the works of Jesus, Him alone. Now, maybe we should ask the question, what should they have said? If you were standing there, it's like, you know, here it is on the test. You know, the test is coming. It's not an open book test, but, you know, it's open now. And I'm going to tell you the answer. What should they have said? What should have been in place for them to be known by God? Now, let me, let me first off say it's not just a matter of knowing the right answer, right? It's not like a test in that regard. It's got to be true in your heart. But two things. Two things. First, note that many people say they know God. But according to this verse, claiming to know God doesn't matter at all. 
Just because you claim to know God doesn't matter. I hear that from people all the time. I love God. God's my friend. God's with me. God was with me. You know, I, I, you know, me and God are buddies. You've heard people talk like that. Everyone wants to say they know God. But the real question in the end, and the end of this verse is, does God know you? Does God know me? It doesn't matter if you think you know God. The question is, does God know you? It's, it's a bit like this, I think. I think many of us want to get God's attention by being good. You know, pick me, pick me, pick me. Lord, look at the good things I've done. But actually, you see, we, we get God's attention by being humble, by bending our knee, by acknowledging that what he says about me is true. I love the quote from C.S. Lewis, who said that it's not that we're bad people coming to God to get good. We're rebels who lay down our arms. That's how we approach God, with that kind of humility. So we humble ourselves by acknowledging that we are far, far short of God's standards. Is, is there anything more humbling in life or more humble in life than seeing our sin for what it is, what it's really done to us, what it's really done to others, what it's really done to God? And taking that deep look of humility into our hearts. Like I said, humility is just acknowledging what God says about us is true. So we acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge that his word about us is true and we beg for mercy. And then we trust Jesus as Lord, not ourselves. We trust Jesus so that we will be known by him. That's how to avoid being a Christian in name only. If you've never done that, if you're sitting here now and you've realized, I have never humbled myself before God. I have never called out to him as a sinner for mercy. Please. No, number one, you are not a believer. Number two, you are calling on Jesus in name only if you call yourself a Christian. And number three, you can do that right now. You can humble yourself in your seat. Bow your heart to God. Secondly, you need to know this, that the Christian message is that our sins are placed on Jesus when he went to the cross. That he bore our sins, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. When we're justified by Jesus, that is when when he makes us righteous, we become one with him. God looks on us And sees the righteousness of Jesus. We become Christ-righteous, not self-righteous. That's so critical of an understanding for the true Christian. Then, after salvation, and let me say this, let's be clear about that. After salvation, works, good deeds, are done in response to the love and, and salvation that God has shown in our hearts. And so we... We don't earn God's favor through good works, but it pleases Him because we love Him. We've come to that place in life where we see what He's done. He's forgiven us as sinners. He's offered us mercy. And so then we do good works because we desire to see Him more clearly and for Him to be pleased with our lives. But we don't earn anything, you understand. We don't earn any entrance into heaven. So on the day, We say, Lord, we are sinners. 
saved by your mercy and grace. You need to understand this passage. You must understand that your religious works do not get you into heaven. It is only by confessing sin, putting your life in the hands of Jesus as your Lord, that you gain access to the kingdom of God. You cannot do anything, Jesus said. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not 50%, not 25%, not 10%, not 5%, not 1%. You can do nothing apart from him. Those who are justified before God are granted entrance. I was in New Zealand last week. I was speaking to a student group down there. It's a wonderful time. I'd been speaking on a different passage, but on similar topic on works righteousness, understanding law and gospel, making sure that it was clear to these students. There was a student sitting up here kind of to the right. She'd been passing notes back and forth to her friends, giggling, talking. I don't think she heard a thing. But when it came to question and answer, and I love question and answer, her hand went up and she said, are you saying Mahatma Gandhi's going to hell? And I said, if Mahatma Gandhi did not know Jesus, and if Jesus did not know him, I'm saying he went to hell. Well, what about all his good works? I was like, I don't think she heard a word I said. (laughs) So one more time. Okay, one more time. Gandhi is not or did not go to hell because he didn't do enough good works. He's going to hell because he's a sinner. The Bible says everyone has fallen short of the glory of God in the book of Romans. It's true for every person on earth. It's like trying to jump to the moon, right? I'm sure there are people that you can jump higher than. There's a lot of people you can't jump as high as. But nobody can jump to the moon. Nobody. You can't do it. That's what it's like to gain heaven. It's a gift. A gift we can't accomplish on our own. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. All that's required of us is to humble ourselves, which is basically acknowledging that who we are is what God says we are, that we're sinners before a holy God, and repent of our pride and sin and accept the free gift of God, His salvation, and follow Him as Lord. Listen, it's shocking to think that it doesn't matter what church background you come from. It doesn't matter how you've become a member here. It doesn't matter how much you read your Bible or how many good deeds you do. It doesn't matter. What matters is this incredible truth that on the day, Jesus will say, I know him because he did the will of God, which was to repent of sin and follow him in complete lordship. I think a number of you know that uh, I'm friends with Wesley Career, the uh, Kenyan uh, runner, marathon runner. In Kenya, we've known Wesley for years, uh, for years as a family friend. He's now an MP in Kenya, which is an astounding story. But when he uh, raced in Chicago two years ago, we decided to go be at the race at the Chicago Marathon. 30,000 people running, uh, 2 million people watching. It was really incredible. And the fun thing was we'd run from place to place in the race to watch Re- Wesley and cheer him on. You know, uh, And Wesley did very well. He came in second. In the Chicago Marathon, he got a car. He got lots of money. I mean, it was amazing. He was on TV. And uh, so we got to kind of go with him, you know. And so we're walking around with him. And, you know, you come up to the, you know, you, you come up to the security guards, hand in the chest. Excuse me, sir. You know, a little thing in their ear. 
And uh, Wesley would turn around and he'd see the security guard stopping us and he'd go, oh, I know him, he's with me. Yeah, I'm with him. (laughs) Yeah, get out of the way. And, uh, you know, the drug testing and all the media interviews, and it is so cool. Happened a couple times. uh, I'm sorry, you're you're not, oh, oh, no, I know him, he's with me. That's how it is with Jesus. One day, on the day, you're going to stand there and you're going to want to hear, oh, I know him. I know her. She's with me. He's with me. Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that you've been faithful in our past to bring us to this point today. I think of all the things, the small hinges that had to turn to bring people to this gathering, never to be repeated, to hear the message of salvation. We thank you for that, Father. We recognize your faithfulness in that, even in that. We recognize that we live in the day uh, today and for the day coming. We pray, Father, that you would give us the power of your spirit to choose you. Lord God, move in our lives. We're so sinful, we can't even call out to you. We can't even call out to you about our sin without a move of your spirit. I pray that to happen here. Oh God, I pray that many would turn to you in complete faith and trust. And Father, we pray for the day, one day when we stand before you, that we would be ready and we would hear the words, I knew you, O good and faithful servant. We long for that. So humbly, humbly, O God, we, we confess to you our sin. Those things that we hold on to, those things that we long for, the baubles and trinkets and fleeting pressures of the world that we... Recognize, Lord, even now in sober minds are just, are just fleeting and passing and can't compare to what you would offer. Oh God, we pray that this day would be preparation for the day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I mentioned earlier... Um, that my conversion was one of the most important days of my life and the days of your life. And I mentioned that the day of judgment would be one of the most, most important days of your life. I hope those two come together today. So if you are wrestling through faith, I want to talk to you. Dave wants to talk to you, the other elders, those that brought you. Talk to them. And... Christian, commit to lordship afresh and anew today for the day.